When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Uh, so hello, everybody, and uh, welcome uh, back to New Books in Economic and Business History, uh, a podcast channel uh, on the New Books Network. Uh, I'm Ghassan Moazin, uh, one of the hosts of the channel. Uh, and today we'll be talking to uh, Dr. Ing Jia Tan, uh, an assistant professor at Wesleyan University, and we'll be talking about his recent book, uh, Recharging China in War and Revolution, 1882 to 1955, which just came out uh, with Cornell University Press and it's a fascinating study of uh, the process of electrification uh, in modern China. And I should also mention that it actually came out open access. Uh, and so you'll find a link to the open access version of the book in the notes uh, to the podcast. So, uh, Ingja, uh, thanks so much for uh, taking the time and welcome to the New Books Network. Oh, thank you for the invitation. Um, it's a pleasure to share um, my uh, work with all of you. Yeah, uh, thanks so much for taking the time. Uh, so, as always, um, I thought we—I wonder whether we can start uh, by asking you, or telling, or whether you could tell us a bit about um, basically how you came to the study of modern China, uh, in particular, how you uh, ended up studying uh, the electrification of modern China, and how you came to this particular topic. Right. Um, well, um, well, I think I took my first really serious modern China class with Professor Ye Wenxin um, at Berkeley. It must be my um, the, the second semester of my sophomore year. Um, and a few really interesting things happened that year. Uh, you know, besides reading a lot of biographies of Chinese political leaders, I also had the chance uh, to uh, know uh, Professor, uh, Dr. Guo Daijun, who was at uh, Hoover Institute, and uh, actually got to uh, help her with some of the translation of her work on the uh, uh, Taiwanese economic development. Um, and then also uh, through Dr. Guo, I got to know uh, 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 Yuan Yuan Ang, who is now at the University of Michigan and who worked on the uh, whose book, um, How China Escaped the Poverty Trap, actually really influenced my work. I don't know, maybe this um, experience perhaps like almost almost 20 years ago that uh, piqued my interest in uh, the history of Republican China um, and got me thinking about um, uh, the driving forces of high accelerated economic growth, 
Um, and also um, the, the ultimate paradox that's sort of behind the, the, the book, right? That's how did China industrialize despite all of its difficulties um, that it faced uh, during this period, 1882 to, to, to 1955. Um, I wasn't actually going to do this. My original plan, I uh, uh, most of actually, I would say most of my undergraduate years was spent actually studying early modern European history. Uh, and uh, I was going to actually you know, write about Jesuit cartography uh, for my PhD dissertation. Uh, but then something happened. Uh, this was March 2011, uh, the great northeastern Japan earthquake and the uh, ensuing disaster in Fukushima. Um, and the thing that kind of caught my attention wasn't so much of the catastrophe and the um, the arrogance of uh, you know placing a nuclear situating nuclear power stations next to the coast. Um, I always believe that someone will pick up on that, but I was really curious about all the uh, power outages that was happening, the the, the rolling blackouts, uh, and the curtailment of electrical consumption in Japan in the aftermath of the of of the earthquake. This got me thinking about. Um, energy crises, right? Was there an example of an energy crisis that we could actually study? Um, and I really looked at, uh, really look, uh, began looking through some of this, uh, the, the sources and, uh, and came across, um, a, um, I think it was Robert Karen's book on the, on the statistical analysis of, of China's electrical um, industries and pointed out that, you know, about 97% of um, uh, China's electrical generating capacity was captured by the Japanese right during uh, during World War II. Um, it also got me to think about the electrical, uh, the energy perspective uh, uh, for uh, sort of the, the role of energy actually in in World War II. Uh, energy played a very vital role in shaping the outcomes uh, of, of of the war. And um, then it then led me, of course, to ask um, how did electricity actually affect uh, the outcome of war and revolution in modern China? Yeah, so that's how I kind of came about. No, oh, fascinating. That's, that's really interesting that you, know, you took a few turns about the, how you sort of, um, from the Fukushima incident, how you then uh, came to this topic. Um, I thought what I, was in, what I found quite interesting uh, when particularly reading the introduction of your book was that... Um, you do say, of course, that you look at the process of electrification in modern China, but you make it very clear that what you're writing is not simply a history of the electrical industries, but uh, you're showing, you're obviously using this process of electrification to make a much sort of larger point and argument in the book. And I, I just sort of wonder before we, whether before we delve into the chapters, um, you could talk a little bit about sort of what is the thrust of the argument of the book. Um, and why do you say, you know, this is not simply history of the electrical industries, but, uh, you know, what instead you wanted to do, to do with the book? Oh, yeah. Um, so I think the bigger argument I have, of course, is about the book is that well, warfare actually shaped um, the electrical, um, the development of the electrical infrastructure. But what type of warfare? Right. Uh, I grew up in Singapore. Um, and I must say that, you know, the thing that is kind of lurking in the background, of course, is the idea of total defense, the, the, the idea that we kind of grew up with, we were inculcated in Singapore. And it's not just military defense. Military defense is only one element of it. There is also economic defense, psychological defense, and so on and so forth. Um, it again got me thinking about war and that war is, does not, do not, wars do not have discrete beginnings, they don't have discrete ends. Uh, and uh, so the, the book actually looks at the, the three types of warfare. 
um, and its impact on um, electrification. Uh, the first two chapters, one would say, is largely about economic warfare. Um, these uh, economic, economic warfare that is waged between uh, textile mills, um, foreign and Chinese, uh, and um, and I'm really I'm really looking at sort of the, the politics of power consumption, um, and that, that really becomes the main uh, focus of that of, of the first two chapters, and then I look at of course military warfare. I look at World War World War Two or the Second Sino-Japanese War as a um, as a disruptive event that it accelerated. Um, China's shift towards coal, um, that this mobilization for war um, forced uh, China you know, to um, domestically produce uh, a lot more of its electrical equipment. Uh, it, then this, this war also presented opportunity for Sino-American technological cooperation um, and really envisioned, of course, uh, uh, hydropower uh, development right, as a path to a national reconstruction. Um, and then I look at of course, um, war and nation building uh, towards in the last in the last two chapters. I look at the uh, war as a, a tactical weapon um, that is not just a weapon that is used in open warfare, but it, it requires some amount of ideological warfare and uh, psychological warfare. Um, I uh, this is this is particularly clear, of course, in the encirclement of Beijing uh, by the PLA and how an electrical power blockade played a decisive role in the communist victory and, and actually capturing the city's infrastructure without entirely destroying it. Um, and then I look at what happens with when, when all these military personnel begin to move into the industries and bring their management techniques right, into the management of electrical power demand, into um, sort of unleashing and, and coming up with ways to unleash the full potential of existing electrical um, equipment. Um, warfare... Um, Brings about some scarcity, uh, uh, or rather, rather warfare. Yes, warfare brings about scarcity, and there are all these adaptations that are made in response to scarcity. Now, the other dimension, of course, that I begin to also think is that well, this this mobilizes this wartime mobilization, the industrial, uh, rather industrial development in the wartime uh, uh, under wartime mobilization comes with a cost. What is the cost of this? And I look at it at three different levels. I look at it at the national level um, in the form when we look at you know the electrical grid as a whole, it is paying a price of uh, residual inefficiencies because many of these wartime projects um, were um, put together uh, for uh, 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 to, to to actually meet these short time uh, uh, short term um, uh, energy demands. The uh, and uh, some of the long-term sustainability issues, efficiency issues, are actually put to the side. Um, I also look at the the, um, the international dimension, right? This, 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 the 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 demand to produce more electrical equipment domestically actually brings China's industries into a collision course with many of its trade partners. Um, and um, one one key aspect, of course, is the rise of techno nationalism. As a response to um, you know China's uh, defense of economic sovereignty, and this has great implications on the trade war and so on and so forth. Um, and finally, I look at it from a kind of planetary level. But that this is 1882 to 1955 is what I might think of as the crucible of the Anthropocene. That many of the much of the great acceleration that we see after 1945 onwards um, has a very long gestation period. Um, that the 
the things that were developments in between in China between 1882 and 1955 were really instrumental in understanding and making sense of why um, uh, China becomes a major contributor uh, to you know, a great acceleration of, of economic output and energy consumption um, in uh, fossil fuel uh, consumption, carbon emissions, so on and so forth. Yeah, so that's sort of my my my, my argument of the book. Yeah, no, thank you. Thank you very much. And I think, um, uh, yeah, I think these three strands that you sort of just put forward, um, I think, encapsulate quite nicely what you do in the book. Um, but I also show how important I think the book is um, in order to understand where China is today as, you know, and, and its energy policy and in, in general, what role also it plays globally um, uh, as sort of in terms of energy production and uh, reliance on carbon and so on. Um one more question I have before we actually um, um, delve in um, is sort of more about the narrative side of things, because I think um, the what I found also really interesting and it's really fun to read is that you have a core group of people in a sense that you, I think you call them the engineer bureaucrats um, who sort of move through your story. Uh, and it's uh, I think it's sort of fascinating to see because you just um, sort of explained the larger themes, but these figures actually... Um, they reappear throughout the story of your book. Um, and I, so I wonder whether you could just talk a little bit about who these engineer bureaucrats are and, and why you chose to sort of put them in this key role in, in, in the book. Okay. I might also have to explain why you use engineer bureaucrats rather sure. than technocrats. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so maybe I'll begin with the, 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 the question about sort of the, 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 the term itself. I have chosen not to use technocrats because of the, the sort of the trappings of the term technocracy, right? The way we understand te- te- technocracy is that um, it is a mode of... Um, uh, a mode of governance that gives a lot of um, priority to techn- technological methods, and I would say that many of these bureaucrats were not technocrats in in in, in any sense, right? They they were, of course, bureaucrats first and foremost. Um, they were officials in, in individual um, uh, departments, and the engineers uh, and, and the uh, engineering was actually a means for which they achieved certain policy outcomes. That the policy outcomes they were there to largely determine. Uh, to, to um, actually achieve some of some of these uh, major outcomes. Now, um, methodology-wise, I think what I do in in, in the book, of course, is that I um, have the readers follow some of these engineer bureaucrats as they go about um, uh, uh, developing their careers and further furthering their careers. Uh, now, the method itself, I'm trained as a historian of science and technology, and um, so, a person who's kind of greatly inspired the, the methodological approach is Bruno Latour. He talks mm-hmm. about kind of like opening the black box and following science in action. Um, and what I did, of course, with this book is that uh, I actually decided to follow these engineers because it was very often the engineers who kind of led me towards what you know Latour terms as the centers of calculation. So an example of how this actually works is that many of these engineers who were trained, sent for sort of like foreign uh, for, for advanced training in foreign countries, would send all these reports to the National Resources Commission and it will compile and a- accumulate expertise um, uh, uh, and, and, and all these uh, other technological um, um, uh, information that they've, they've acquired from their learning were then accumulated in, in, in a single place. Now, um, and this allows me then to see, uh, for example, um, where 
um, how, how engineers were actually uh, accumulating knowledge, uh, what were they paying attention to, um, how was all this knowledge actually being transferred. Uh, and uh, that was really the rationale for following these engineer bureaucrats, that they were very active um, um, players in uh, knowledge production. And uh, the other uh, reason, of course, of course, it has to do with sort of science in action, that this is, you know, a, an, um, an electrical um, infrastructure that was still being constructed and that there were many um, unresolved debates over, say, um, electrical power standards, over um, the, 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 the ideal modes of production, um, the, you know, how to go about contracting uh, um, uh, uh, pieces of um, um, Sort of hydro, hydraulic projects, say for example, right? And these um, engineers were actually in uh, discussion with each other. That many, this this was actually a time uh, where uh, the where the electrical infrastructure has not been fully established, and that um, ideas was uh, about its its um, its final state still uh, in deliberation. Um, the other aspect I would say that the kind of influence uh, my um, decision to focus on the engineer bureaucrats, have, of course, has to do with my reading of Mario Biagioli's Galileo Cortia, that um, I actually look at um, engineers um, as, um, as um, officials who are trying to develop and advance their career and how they actually use science and their expertise in science and technology as a way of advancing of advancing their career. One of the one of the engineer bureaucrats I actually focus on is uh, Sun Yunxuan, who rose through the ranks right to be the um, premier of Taiwan. Uh, before that, he was a general manager of Thai Power, uh, and and even before that, uh, an engineer who was um, deeply involved in the. Uh, construction of these wartime power stations in, in northwestern China. Uh, and that um, electricity, the, um, uh, the electrical industry has provided an avenue uh, of advancement for uh, many of these, uh, for many of these engineers, or rather many of these um, uh, uh, scholars, uh, people who kind of imagine themselves as, as, as kind of inheritors of the scholar official tradition. And the engineering then opened up a path uh, for um, career advancement. Yeah, thank you. And uh, again, I think this is really um, uh, brings the story to life a lot that you that you focus on these really really interesting figures um, that we of course normally don't read much about, but I think they come out really uh, nicely. But now I finally want to uh, delve into the actual uh, chapters. And so, in the first two chapters, as you've already mentioned. Um, uh, we are in the sort of pre-World War II, uh, pre-war of resistance period, so before 1937. Uh, and in Chapter 1, um, you sort of start your story in the 1880s um, uh, with sort of the introduction of electricity into China. That happens, of course, um, you know, for those who are not that familiar with the Chinese context at that time. You have treaty ports along the Chinese coast. Uh, Shanghai is probably the most prominent of those uh, treaty ports, and these treaty ports are under uh, foreign administration and control. And that's where sort of the story uh, with electricity starts in China, and uh, you focus on Shanghai in this first chapter. So I wonder whether you could talk a bit about, you know, how this electricity basically gets started and, and sort of what, what do you discuss and describe, and how do you describe this uh, in, in regards to Ch Shanghai uh, in, in the first chapter? Okay. 
Um, well, the first chapter turned out to be the way it is because uh, because um, I have often kind of thought that um, the story of electricity in Shanghai is too uh, focused on electrical lighting. Um, the electrical lighting, I actually feel, only tells part of the story. Um, it does not um, explain why um, electricity, um, uh, why the electrical industry eventually expanded. And so um, the first chapter is really about um, uh, how cotton mills became the main driving force of electrification. Um, I begin in the 1880s, as, as one would expect, because this was the first, we saw the establishment of the first um, power station in Shanghai. Um, and the main purpose of that power station was for electrical lighting. But electrical lighting um, only provided sort of a very limited, um, provided very limited scope for um, of expansion. Right? Think of electrical electrical lights. When do we actually need to use it? Um, well, only for a very small, very short amount of time at night. Um, or, um, and uh, there's actually limited avenues of growth. And what that means, of course, is that the electrical equipment is left there idling right, during, the, during the daytime. Now, electrical power, power stations uh, needed to find new avenues of, um, of revenue. And gradually, by the 1900s and 19-teens, the realization, of course, is that the, the, the industries in the international settlements, partly um, the, the, the whole group cluster of cotton mills along Yangshupu Road, um, were perfect clients for um, electrical power. And that really provided then the driving force for, um, for the expansion of, of, of electrical power. Now, the other thing which, is, which I'd like to also point out in this chapter, of course, is that this, the electrification of cotton milling allows us to see the, the, the unevenness of uh, economic expansion in, in China. Uh, the power station actually largely underestimated the power demand, and it was only able to uh, provide uh, electrical power to a very small fraction of the cotton mills. Um, those really pretty much along Yangshupu Road and the, on the on the Huangpu River. Um, there was an entire cluster out um, in sort of like along the Suzhou Creek. Um, they still relied on the old method of you know, installing and generating their own power with steam engines. Um, and this really got me thinking about the, 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 the sort of the question of the persistence of obsolescence. Um, obsolete equipment was everywhere. Um, Chinese power mills that didn't have um, the means to acquire electrical power from uh, a Shanghai power station that was actually controlled by the Shanghai uh, Municipal Council um, actually had to acquire um Electricity, or just generate their own electricity, and also, well, it also meant they were installing all these obsolete equipment. It weakened their efficiency. But yet, at the same time, the other thing that I got me that, that this chapter also points out is that um, electricity can also be a kind of a double-edged sword. It could help to enhance the competitiveness of these foreign mills by improving their efficiency, but at the same time. Um, in in times of labor unrest, they were also very prone. The 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 foreign owned mills that relied on Shanghai power were also very prone to having their power cut off, and that was the the incident that I highlighted in um, in um, in that chapter in sort of nineteen twenty five uh, during the uh, following the May thirtieth incident. It was actually the foreign mills. Uh, that bore the brunt of um, the labor unrest. It's not only because there was great 
labor dispute between the Chinese and the and the foreign workers. Uh, not sorry, it's the Chinese workers and the foreign owners. But also there was also a lot of um, uh, that the uh, the Shanghai Municipal Council tried to bring an end to the the the, the, the strike by cutting off power to mm-hmm. um, all its clients um, and um, and tried to use that as a way of forcing. The workers and the and and the uh, and their employers to come to to a resolution. Yeah, and uh, I think one uh, one one further thing to 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 well, one I want to ask you about is of course then that the the consequence of that uh, you know the May thirtieth movement and so on is that the so the as you explained it the the electrical power plant was under the the Shanghai Municipal Council so that's the foreign administration of the uh, of the um, foreign concession but it is then privatized so yep. um i wonder whether you could talk a bit because i think that's quite important especially if when we move to the the wartime period where sort of we, we don't see obviously that we see the opposite of the privatization but here mm-hmm. we actually see electrical power being privatized oh yeah um so yes as a consequence of that uh you know well the shanghai municipal council uh rather the shanghai power station was actually sort of like the, uh, the electrical electricity department was really the cash cow of the Shanghai Municipal Council. It was actually highly lucrative. And um, that was something I was always very puzzled about. So why did they really, why did they decide to sell Shanghai Power? Um, no, it turns out, of course, that um, the, Shanghai Municipal, the Shanghai Municipal Council was also concerned that, you know, that their handling of the of the power blockade during the uh, May 30th incident could be seen, of course, as, you know, the British or the Americans who controlled the electricity department favoring the foreign foreign, uh, companies. Uh, And to kind of get a way to to, to just, the the, the privatization, of course, was a move, right, to, to remove electrical power from the politics, from municipal politics, and, and, and allow, of course, um, uh, electricity to be um, that the, to allow the provision of electrical power to be immune, of course, from political developments. Now, this I would say um, now before we get to the war time, um, actually allows us to look at sort of like the politics. We should really also look at the politics of of, of uh, power consumption in um, the other parts of the Lower Yangtze. Uh, it's the same argument, in fact, that the, uh, the the small power plant owners in uh, the lower Yangtze they were making pretty much the same argument that you know that um, uh, electrical power should not be, uh, the provision of electrical power should not be politicized that it um, that you know the market forces should be allowed to determine and that it's very often that you know um, market forces would actually uh, lead to a you know a, a much more optimal outcome. For consumers, that electrical prices will be you know much lower, um, that power companies will be more responsive to the needs of their of their of their consumers, and that um, the, the state should really stay away from um, taking over um, power stations and um, and um, squeezing out private capital. Yeah, exactly. I felt that was really really very interesting to see, and you should sort of already. Um, touching upon what you then do in, in chapter two, of course, which again is still before, very much before 1937, is that uh, we sort of move from Shanghai in your book to uh, 
to Huzhou uh, in Zhejiang, which is not too far away from Shanghai, really. Uh, and there, again, as you say, you have this, um, you have these local elites running the power supply. But then in 1927, uh, or after 1927, we, of course, have the, the nationalists come to power, uh, the Kuomintang, and they uh, basically want to come in and nationalize. And then there's sort of this conflict going on between the uh, government and private interests. Um, and yeah, I wonder whether you could talk a bit about first how these local elites actually came to supply the power for Hujo and then what happens when the uh, Guomindang moves in and uh, whether or not the Guomindang is actually successful in, uh, in, in nationalizing things. Yeah. Um, this is actually, I must say, one of the most challenging chapters to write <laughs> because um, I... You know, I, I often worry, of course, that the, the, the central highlight of this chapter is this, this power dispute between the Huzhou silk industry and the power station. I wonder, well, it's, could, I, could I be kind of you know, making a storm out of a, a teacup? Uh, it, it does seem that it looks like a really small localized dispute. And, you know, could, am I reading too much into this? But I think that as I was uh, working on this chapter, I began to realize, of course, that there were actually two competing visions for saving sort of national salvation through industrialization. The national salvation through industrialization narrative that we often thought about is actually driven by the state. Right? It's it's that the the part that is actually picked up by the National Resources Commission uh, uh, after, after after the uh, during during the war. Um, but I also realized of course that well look enterprises, private enterprises were also using that rhetoric of uh, saving uh, the nation, national salvation through industrialization. Why would they not? Because they are at the forefront of foreign competition. Um, the biggest impetus for electrifying uh, the, uh, the, weaving of the, uh, the weaving of silk uh, actually comes from, uh, it's actually the result of sort of like Japanese uh, competition. Uh, Japanese silk, which was largely machine woven, was actually displacing hand woven silk and the gentry in Huzhou, who also have a lot of business interests in the silk industry in Shanghai, began to look at the electrification of um, silk weaving. Um, and this gradually, of course, led the um, elite to um, come up with a kind of a, a profit-sharing uh, mechanism where the silk weavers would invest in the uh, power station and the power, they, they, they would then receive um, uh, preferential treatment Right, from the uh, power station in the sense that they will get, they will get um, uh, deductions in, in electrical tariffs. Uh, this, of course, then allowed the uh, Huzhou silk uh, to re regain some of its market share. Now, what happens, of course, is that most of that story I was talking about, about you know, the electrification of silk weaving, was happening between 1919 to 1927. 1927 comes along, uh, the nationalist um, government um, uh, takes over uh, the Nanjing Power Works, which was a complete mess. Um, the boilers were rusting and, um, and they rehabilitated it, actually much to the joy of some of the, 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 the local gentry. They were really, really, um, it was actually spoken very, very favorably. They also took over um, the power station in Changshu, or China, sorry, Changzhou, uh, this is the Qishuyan uh, power, power station. Uh, but then the gentry began to realize that, wait, there, is actually, there, there seems to be a bigger plan out there. That the nationalist government is going about a very aggressive process of acquiring uh, power stations. And uh, interestingly, the, the general manager 
of Huzhou of the of the Wuxing um, power plant in Huzhou begin uh, to mo uh, mobilize um, other private power plants plant owners to to uh, lead a petition to to actually stop uh, the acquisition of uh, or rather the nationalization of of of, of power stations. Um, the interesting thing that we actually see from this from this chapter is, is besides this you know this these competing visions of of of, of national salvation through industrialization, um, is that we actually see a kind of a compression right of national politics and local politics. Uh, the Kuomintang regime in uh, 1927 was still, I would say, a newcomer to the to to, to the region. Although Chiang himself was from was from the the, the, the lower Yangtze, but but still, it is it was actually a kind of a, a newly established regime, um, and that it was actually coming up against the realities, the, the the harsh political realities, and that in order not to alienate the the the, the gentry, it then kind of scaled back its its uh its ambition its ambitious plans to to uh, uh to uh, nationalize but with I, it, the the question then really becomes well is that the end of nationalization is that what what is the role of the government in this case interestingly what the national construction commission at this time the jian shou wei was really interested in at this time was that maybe it could just readjust and recalibrate the responsibility of the government so there were two key responsibilities that gradually emerged right out of this dispute. The first, of course, is that the, the National Construction Commission focused on its responsibilities as a regulator. And so come 1935, when there was a dispute between the Huzhou silk uh, industry and the power station, when the Huzhou power plant actually threatened to cut off power to the, um, to the, to the silk mills, the state stepped in. So they played. They focused on their role on, as as regulators, um, and the second thing, of course, was that they um, also focused on the um, management of the few state-owned uh, power stations and used them as a model for other uh, 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 for for some of the other power uh, companies, uh, and that is something that I think that we'll, we will see um, carry over to the next to the next phase in in thirty seven. Um, that their ex their experience as um, in, uh, as the regulators of the industry, the regulators, uh, their experience as the as the managers of the of these um, state-owned power plants would then uh, um, prepare them uh, to take on the task of uh, wartime electrical infrastructure development. Yeah, I think this is first of all very interesting as a, as I think appreciated what then happens during the war, but I. Also found this Hujo case like super interesting just to see. It's, it's sort of a nice example to see how this, you know, the history of this always going on. A lot of people write, obviously, there's a new regime that's being established in 1927 and so on. But how does actually does this work? How does this actually work out on the local level? Um, it, it is always fascinating to me. And I think this is a really nice um, example of how this uh, plays, plays out there. Um, but yeah, so if we if we move on to uh, chapter three and rather chapter three to five, all deal uh, with the wartime period between nineteen thirty seven uh, and nineteen forty five. Obviously, nineteen thirty seven, uh, the uh, you know war breaks out, the the Japanese invade, and uh, first North China, and then the whole Chinese coast is quickly under uh, under Japanese occupation. And uh, I think in chapter three, you, you sort of lay out first what do you know what do both the Japanese do with the electrical power grid, and what do the retreating nationalists do. And so I wonder whether you could talk a bit about that, like what happens when war breaks out and then 
what role does electricity come to play in electricity supply? Yeah. Um, so, what I'm so scarcity again is this. Uh, I'm, I'm, again, the, the next three chapters largely look at sort of responses to scarcity. Right? What do, of course, the Japanese and the retreating nationalists do to 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 the electrical grid? And a very simple answer to this, of course, was to um, to rationalize. Um, its operations and, and what this mostly I would say came in it really rather came in it really came in the form of um, centralizing the distribution and consumption of coal um, and uh, in this chapter I really make the the, the argument of course that uh, the management uh, the centralizing uh, of the the centralization of the distribution and consumption of coal um, played a very important role in uh, accelerating China's uh, transition to um, uh, to a carbon economy. The other thing that was happening, of course, was that w- what's behind this rationalization? Then uh, the the uh, the Japanese were also very mindful, of course, of the cost of transporting coal. Um, a lot of the electrical infrastructure, then, or rather, a lot, some of the electrical generating capacity was then moved northwards. So essentially, what we see here in the war is a reconfiguration of China's electrical geography. Before the war, and, and that's why chapter one and two, I really don't really venture out of the of the lower Yangtze. It's because well, outside the lower Yangtze, uh, the the scale of electrical. Um, uh, the scale of electrical industries in in, 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 in North China uh, was relatively small. This, um, and but then things changed after the war. Um, North China became extremely important. Um, the extent of damage that Shanghai sustained also meant that the demand for electricity in Shanghai was going to be much lower. And what the Japanese did, of course, is that they then transferred um, some of the power generating assets from Du Yuesheng's uh, uh, Chinese merchants um, electrical uh, company, the Huashang Dianchang, northwards into Beijing, into Boshan, um, and to bring them, and, and, and what they did, of course, was to make up for the shortfall in electrical generating capacity. Now, the focus on coal is, of course, is, is important because coal, as we know, is the, forms the largest component of China's energy mix. And, uh, and I'm really interested, of course, in the, the, the question really, how, when did coal really become the main uh, source of, um, of uh, a main fuel for, for, for electrical generation? If we look at chapter one and two, um, the, the, the fuel mix is a lot more diverse. We're talking about coal, diesel fuel, um, there's some amount of hydro. Um, but after, um, after the war, uh, in both, of course, the retreat in, in, in both the Japanese occupied areas and the areas co- occupied by the uh, by the nationalists, coal was actually the dominant um, source of, of fuel. The same thing was actually happening. In fact, that, that same process of decentralization and distribution and um, and consumption uh, was also happening in the in the nationalist uh, uh, areas. I focus on on the Kunming Lake site electrical um, uh, power plant because. Um, it is actually part of a vertically integrated industrial complex. There is, of course, Mingliang um, uh, coal plant, which was then uh, which provided most of the uh, of the coal uh, for the in- industries in the Mahjiezi, um industrial complex on the on the coast of Kunming Lake, um, and uh, that that vertical integration, um, the 
the reliance and the reliance on, on, on coal as the main source of fuel was also happening in in um, in southwest in southwest China. Yeah, it's really really fascinating how how the war basically reshapes the the, the well the grid and 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 also the sort of location and foci of of of, of electrical power. Uh, and, and I should mention, of course, that um, again for those who might not be that familiar with the backstory, of course, that the nationalists then uh, because you mentioned Kuming, the nationalists of course then move all the industry or as much as possible uh, to the west of China, which had not been you know, not been at all a center of industrialization. And, you know, then it's in Sichuan and in Yunnan, Kunming, as you say, where um, all this uh, industry goes then. Um, and, um, yeah, and that's all, I mean, you you do remain there um, uh, in Chapter 4 as well. Uh, and, and uh, I mean, certainly I found that, of course, uh, particularly interesting. But you, you then talk not just about electrical power um, generation, but also uh, the, gener- the the production of electrical equipment, actually. And how that has sort of moved from, um, I suppose, more consumption sort of focus uh, in, in 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 Chinese industry overall, and um, pre thirty seven to, you know, electrical equipment really becoming uh, a part of, of the military and and, and, and defense industry. Um, so, uh, could you maybe talk a bit about that, like in, in chapter four, what what exactly happens to electrical equipment, the production of electrical equipment in in the west of China under national rule? Right. Yeah. Um, that this I'll say a little bit about the the this, this chapter in particular. Actually, this was the first chapter I wrote for my dissertation. Um, it I often kind of think of it as the as the golden pivot around which the entire um, book revolves. Um, and um, so, you know, back to the question about sort of Southwest China. Why do I remain there? Right. Um, well. Uh, Kunming is, of course, a really interesting uh, place, an important place for the um, uh, for the nationalist regime. It is the first major city uh, that the uh, the Haiphong Kunming Railway encounters. Um, so it is actually at the nexus of many important transportation routes. Geographically, it is also close to some of the best uh, copper mines in the country, the Dongchuan, the Dongchuan copper mines. And it's all these kind of geographical factors that ultimately kind of shaped right the location of the electrical equipment industry. Um, this was where uh, the National Resources Commission realized that well, this this that Kunming was actually a very ideal location. Before that, they were thinking of somewhere in Xiangtan, but of course, we know with the Japanese troops moving in <laughs> and capturing Wuhan, uh, Xiangtan would actually be in, in Hunan would be actually be in striking distance. So the, the the, the, the nationalists actually had to retreat further southwest, um, and they arrived at this kind of nice uh, sort of sweet spot. Uh, the reason why I wrote this chapter first was that this was where I could very visibly see right the uh, production of electrical equipment and its intersection with military needs. The first three things that were actually produced were all related to military communications, um, copper wires, it doesn't generate much electricity, but it conducts electricity. It's a very important component. Um, uh, radio tubes, which is actually actually used in radio communications, um, and then uh, field telephones, and then there is the all the other electrical equipment that kind of does not fall under these. Um, 
the the first three categories of the, the generators, the transformers, all that falls into sort of like the the, the fourth unit of the of the central electrical manufacturing works. So this is where I actually see, of course, the the, the importance of electrical equipment manufacturing and, and military strategic interests. Now the other interesting thing, of course, is I um, I rather the other um, insight I kind of. Uh, got from our historical actors is that um, the like, manufacturing of electrical equipment was actually more crucial to China's energy security than uh, a stable supply of fuel. Actually, coal was everywhere. Coal was everywhere. Um, be it in North China, even you know, you could actually in in in, in Southwest China, it's actually lignite, which has very high water content, but you could you could make do with it. Right? Um, um, but electrical equipment was by no means abundant. Before 1937, huge amounts of electrical equipment had to be imported. Um, um, copper wires <laughs> had to be imported. Something as basic as that. Uh, radio tubes had to be imported. Um, generators. And in fact, that was... Um, uh, and the, the main suppliers were, of course, like Germany, um, um, the United Kingdom. The United States was a distant fourth. Um, and the engineer bureaucrat, Yunzhen, Came to a realization that, you know, that um, China's energy independence really relied on um, a stable supply of electrical equipment. That China would be beholden, of course, to foreign uh, corporate interests if it did not, it did not acquire the ability to build its own um, power generators and 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 um, and manufacture its own own wires. Um, and that's why I think by in one or two years into his into his into this whole uh, relocation effort, uh, he decided to relinquish his post as the director of the Electrical Power Bureau. And he thought that well, that that is a portfolio that anyone can really take, but he really focused on electrical equipment manufacturing. Um, that was also the site of a lot of knowledge production. Many of the engineers who were handpicked to um, Train in in the United States were actually um, engineers who distinguished themselves, um, uh, who had made important contributions to electrical uh, equipment research. Um, anyone who was working uh, on industrial equipment would also highlight the connections uh, of their projects with electricity. Um, so it really became it really became clear right, that electrical equipment manufacturing was sort of like the center. Of knowledge production, it was it was it was where all the cutting edge um, applied uh, research was happening, uh, and that was where I would say you know uh, the, uh, this this was actually the the, the launch pad of uh, for the careers of many um, engineer bureaucrats. Yeah, wonderful. That's really. I mean, I, when I was reading that chapter, I thought that, that was really really interesting in the sense how uh, yeah how import substitution was sort of forced upon the. Chinese by by the you know being having to move westwards and then suddenly you know as you say even like things like copper wire you have to then figure out uh, how to manufacture um, yourself and you can't uh, can't just import it anymore um, and then it, sort of to move to to, to 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 chapter five I think it's sort of another really interesting facet of, of the war um, that uh, that comes out there and that's the the cooperation with the Americans sort of the global perspective to to all of this and and the, the the kind of uh, the role this this cooperation with the Americans actually plays in 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 hydropower um, and and the introduction of hydropower into China, 
So um, yeah, I wonder whether you could talk about like how did this come about the uh, the this sort of cooperation, this particular field, and and why hydropower then? Mm-hmm. Oh, um, this this chapter on the American. Sorry, the cooperation between the National Resources Commission and the Tennessee Valley Authority is a is a chapter I don't know really quite know how to fit into. I, I actually felt, of course, that at least one of the chapters had to talk about hydropower, uh, just kind of round things up, and uh, and I so I decided then that uh, you know, the most visible um, the most visible uh, project uh, for technological cooperation was, was that between the TVA and, and, and the National Resources Commission. Um, I would say that this chapter also, I would say, deals, of course, with ideal, more of, of ideals of developmentalism. Um, the, the engineers who were sent abroad during this time were already kind of putting aside sort of like the day-to-day um, struggle of building the electrical infrastructure where the enemies were kind of like pouring bombs on them. Right? They are now in this, this, the American home front. They were sent there. Um, and I think their sights were really set on national reconstruction. The, I, the, 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 main, the key motivations, of course, is uh, what is going to happen after what is going to happen after um, China uh, after the war ends and that China actually has to rebuild, and that hydropower then becomes really an important um, aspect uh, of of national reconstruction. Uh, in particular, of course, um, the project that takes up it's kind of sucks up all the oxygen in the room. Of course, is the Three Gorges Dam. Uh, uh, the uh, American uh, engineer. Uh, also an engineer bureaucrat himself, John, S., uh, John, Savage, John Lucien Savage, uh, visited China during the height of the war, uh, actually several months after the Ichiko offensive, uh, to survey um, the upper reaches of the Yangtze. He doesn't really go to the site in Yichang, but he, he makes enough, he, he gathers enough information and comes up with this massive, uh, this really grandiose plan. Now what I see in that, of course, is um, sort of the the the, the the downside or the 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 naive the naivety of this blank slate mentality that was coming through in this project. I think if we look at the 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 the, um, the, the Sino-American economic uh, technological cooperation, uh, the naivety of this blank slate mentality was just everywhere, right? Um, Savage's plan, uh, you know, just building this massive dam. Over, over the, uh, over the, over the Yangtze, uh, and uh, and and how the bureaucrats, how the Kuomintang bureaucrats were kind of, you know, hyping up this project and saying, you know, how this, how this could be the greatest, uh, uh, how how this is the most historically significant project since you know the Bing irrigated uh, Sichuan, and you know led to the unification of the Qin. There are a lot of these, there are all, all these kind of visions of national unification that was happening, but yet at the same time, I think what I did, of course. By looking at the archival material in uh, the um, in the Bureau of Reclamation from the National Archives and the uh, and the American Heritage Center, was that I gradually realized that this was a this was a project that was fraught with problems, and even the people on the ground began to realize that many of these developmental visions were just um, unrealistic. Um, some of the surveys. Uh, were conducted so poorly that you know there were mistakes in the there was mistakes made in the maps. Uh, there were there were massive miscalculations on the 
on the on the volume of the concrete that was needed. There was um, the, the sites that were chosen also were geologically unstable. Um, and there were all these problems gradually um, surfaced. So I, what I'm trying to also point out, of course, is that this is, there is more to the, the Three Gorges Dam story than one that says, well, you know, the, the, the nationalists just ran out of money and they, they shelved it. Right? What I want to point out, of course, is that it's the, 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 the naive blank slate mentality that was driving the Three Gorges Dam is actually still well and alive today. It is, of course, the Anthropocene is actually a very major part of it. Mm-hmm. Think, if you think about what 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 the the a massive dam like this was actually doing, it is actually accelerating um, uh, geological change that would you know take tens and thousands of thousands or hundreds of thousands of years to happen, and you know fast forward it and, and compress it all within about a hundred or so years. Um, and uh, that, that's what I'm, uh, yeah, that's, that's, I think, what I want to achieve, of course, with, with, with Chapter 5. Um, if we look at 3 and 3 to 5 as a whole, um, we look at, you know, the war was really a very disruptive event. It was, it's where we actually see um, um, you know, greater involvement by the, by, the nas- by the national governments in shaping electrical industry, um, in, in electrical uh, infrastructure development. But yet, at the same time, I think there is also... Um, uh, there is a certain um, blank slate mentality that kind of creeps into the um, uh, all these like grandiose visions that you know China could actually achieve um, accelerated development without much um, without much resistance. That the war had kind of wiped the slate clean, mm-hmm. and this was China's chance to start all over again. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think that's something that we generally see in quite, I think, a quite a lot of sort of nation building rhetoric from the nationals during that period that, I mean, uh, the war, yeah, of course, very disruptive, but it, it is quite clearly you know, an opportunity to, you know, build a nation and build sort of a modern state. And I think, yeah, that comes comes out really nicely in, uh, in Chapter 5, certainly. Um, so uh, Chapter 6 and 7, then, look at the, uh, the post-war uh, period, or rather, well, I mean, China sort of, you know, World War II ends, but warfare does not end in China, of course. And um, we first, of course, have the civil war um, between uh, the communists and nationalists, uh, uh, from which the communists then um, emerge victorious. Uh, and I think you bring this very, um, uh, it's a very interesting energy perspective to that. You already touched upon uh, the the sort of encirclement of Beiping. Uh, so um, maybe you can talk um, sort of a bit about that, and in general, like what uh, what role did electricity sort of play in in this conflict? Between forty-five and forty-nine. Yeah, so um, this is where I, I think that the the first three chapters got me, or rather the, the chapters three to five really got me thinking about uh, another question: is, is to what extent could electricity be used as a weapon in warfare? Um, and surprisingly, in the first in those chapters, I did not actually touch on that. Right, <laughs> um, the main focus for the for chapters uh, three to five was really about um, uh, infrastructure development, be it in the Japanese occupied areas or in areas under Kuomintang control. Um, but um, moving into the civil war, I think this is where we actually get to see, of course, how um, electricity um, became this kind of weapon, uh, a, a weapon for, uh, for, for tactical uh, warfare. Uh, first and foremost, I would say, um, and that the, the chapter six is divided into three parts. Really, the first part has to do with the um, the, the scramble for reparations. 
right? So the, the Soviets were in the game. Um, the Chinese were trying to gain. The Chinese were trying to gain their fair share of rec- reparations from the from the from the Japanese, and this then you know creates this massively kind of chaotic situation. The Northeast really becomes de- destabilized as a result of the of the Soviets withdrawing electrical equipment um, and claiming their share of the reparations. Um, the the Chinese uh, the the nationalists um, go about. Um, uh, taking over some of the Japanese assets, but they, what they also do is that they return um, the, the the power stations to their rightful owners, and they really have very little to show for what they were doing. Um, and uh, the other problem, of course, is that as the nationalists were going about administering these power stations, they were also on the they they also had to bear the economic losses that came with managing. Um, Mm-hmm. These uh, these these power stations. So in a way, what happens during the scramble for reparations is that everyone comes out as a loser. The the, the communists come out on the losing end because well they have northeast China which is in shambles. Um, the nationalists come out on the losing end because well they 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 incur these massive losses that are in you know, in the millions dollars by the day and then with hyperinflation everything mm-hmm. kind of goes haywire the, the foreign capitalists are also on a losing end because um hyperinflation and all is kind of making the entire electrical market un- uncertain now um you throw war into that mix now what happens of course is that uh independently of course the the, the civil war was the civil war was happening and um the the communists were trying to make inroads into the city um, but they weren't very successful in the beginning. I mean, there were um, underground uh, um, cells in in power stations that got busted. Um, the Communist Party membership was actually very low in in, in power stations. Um, and uh, as the communist troops were moving into the cities, they realized, of course, that the 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 uh, nationalist forces were actually setting up defense right around the power station. So very often, some of these power stations would get blown up. And it will really kind of slow them down. What happened, of course, is when we look at all these accounts of power stations getting destroyed, um, they were saying, of course, that you know a very small power station would take three to four months to repair. Now, here's where the puzzle, the puzzle I'm trying to solve in this, in this, in this chapter is. Uh, the, 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 the question that is driving this chapter really is, you know, how did the Chinese communists inherit a, the power infrastructure largely intact after a really bloody civil war, right? That you don't see kind of the, the communists struggling to rebuild a ton of power stations around like across the country. And I think the key to it really lies in some the later stages of the civil war, where the communists began to work with the engineers, um, they began infiltrating the power stations, they... Um, uh, and uh, this really allowed them to then execute their plan of capturing the power stations before taking these major cities, um, preventing the nationalists from blowing up these power stations on on during during their retreat. Uh, and uh, the tactical encirclement of Beiping was also a really a really good example where um, the communists could actually control the flow of electricity. They knew, of course, that this was this was a horrible, a very blunt tool. Like cutting off electricity to a power city of a million or so people, uh, you would actually create a lot of discontent, and so they were able to get a tacit approval of Fuzhou and a number of the and, and work collaborated with engineers who had defected um, to restore power for a few hours a day. Uh, 
And what this standard really allows us to see, of course, is this kind of this whole trial and error process, right? That really allowed the, the communists to uh, gain control of the. Uh, now, what this really resulted in was that the nationalists were panicking. They began to worry that you know the same tactics that the that the communists were using on mainland China would be applied on Taiwan, and this was where. This is why I ended that chapter with the case of um, the court martial of Liu Jinyu, the first uh, general manager of Tai Power, a war hero himself. I mean, he was the one who built the power station in Kunming. Uh, the, um, based on accounts and papers, I mean, he was a devout Catholic also. And uh, he was accused, of course, of collaborating with the communists. Um, and the, the, um, the, uh, and um, and then he was summarily uh, tried and, and executed. Um, and I would say, you know, I, without going into kind of the details of the case, I think what we can see, of, of course, from the case itself is that then this, the nationalists actually responded in that way because they were fearful, of course, of losing that last, that, 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 um, the electrical infrastructure that they successfully restored on, on Taiwan. Um, that was sort of like the last, the last, you know, the last, the place where they would make that last stand, and um, they were also worried about um, um, the infiltration of the of the enemy. Yeah, really interesting. Uh, this this uh, again, I think, sort of reading that account um, uh, of the civil war um, really brings this. Yeah, having this sort of energy electricity perspective is, is really bringing sort of a new side to this to this conflict, which I I thought was wonderful. I think um, readers will really in, enjoy that. Um, and then, of course, in in in, in chapter seven uh, of the book, we then you know the the, the communists are, are are victorious, and then we sort of see how, um, of course, warfare does continue with the Korean uh, Korean War, but uh, we then sort of see how uh, the communists try to uh, um, yeah basically sort of establish and 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 deal with the electricity grid uh, again. Um, so I wonder whether you can talk about that, like what do the communists actually do after 1949 and, and how do they try to de- further develop the uh, electricity grid? But um, I also wonder whether you can talk a bit, because this is another, I think, fascinating story about what these um, this en- engineer bureaucrats actually do, like because a lot of them actually stay uh, and, uh, and and still play a role. And it's sort of interesting in itself, having risen sort of under the, uh, to prominence under the nationalists, but then they stay mm-hmm. Uh, actually, uh, and uh, and stay with the communists. So I wonder whether you can talk about that as well a bit. Yeah, um, maybe I'll take the second question first about about sure. what the engineer bureaucrats do, because um, you know the, the the reason why the the communists were able to execute that strategy of electrical blockading, right, was largely due to the cooperation of the engineers who defected. Uh, a main player in in Beiping was Bao Guobao, the um, the general manager of North Hebei um, Electrical um, uh, Company, um, a, a very again one of the major one of the major um, uh, uh, engineer bureaucrats in the in the Resources Commission, uh, uh, and also uh, we also see of course Yunzhen Yunzhen remains behind, uh, and he takes over the um, the electrical manufacturing facility in in, in Shanghai, um, and. I think that one way to kind of think about, you know, to get at the question of, you know, why did the why did these engineer bureaucrats remain behind, right? It's, be, it's primarily, I would say, because they saw the communists um, as the. Uh, uh, I think they, should, they they believe that the communists provided them the best chance of fulfilling their vision of nationalization, 
of nationalization. It was very clear in uh, that that Yun, Yun, that Yun Zhen, uh, was um, very bent on um, uh, pushing this nationalization agenda. He always believed that um, any amount of private pri- private enterprise in electrical in the electrical infrastructure would open the electrical infrastructure to foreign interference. Um, and that uh, he made it really clear, of course, to the uh, the journalist Xu Ying, who interviewed him. Uh, the, the, this was the, the same journalist who wrote the account of the encirclement of Beiping. So that once you make the connection there, you realize that oh, that 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 his decision that he had long decided that he was going to defect to the to the communists. That he saw, of course, the communists as um, someone who as as you know the, the government that gave them the greatest chance of achieving their lifelong dream. Now, um, war continues, right? And um, and that's why I would say it's really important. That's why the, the story goes back to Shanghai. Now, we kind of think of Shanghai as you know, like the, the kind of kind of crown jewel, the 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 um, the, the sort of the center of um, uh, of the entire electrification story. But let's remember, of course, that Shanghai experienced a massive decline after forty after forty one to uh, between forty one to forty five, at least. Um, the, its electrical generating capacity is sharply reduced. Um, the Japanese were curtailing the amount of coal going into Shanghai, um, and uh, and this this decline, I would say, would persist for us for a certain period because uh, from fifty from nineteen fifty to say fifty five, uh, Shanghai was actually a city on the front. Right? It was um, so the, the the chapter begins with. Bang! Of course, the the aerial bombardment of uh, the Shanghai of Yangshupu power station, the, the very power station at the center of our stories, um, and that uh, Yangshupu, uh, the the reconstruction of the rehabilitation of the electrical uh, uh, facilities in 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 Yangshupu, uh, then provides um, an opening for a highly militarized regime of um, uh, of uh, managing both power production and consumption. What happens, of course, is that uh, uh, Shanghai was really forced to make full use of its um, uh, uh, existing generating capacity. And the only way to achieve this was uh, to ensure that economic production was spread out evenly across the 24-hour clock. Uh, this would prevent the oversurging mm-hmm. of of the of the power grid and also underutilization, uh, but this also caused several problems. Right, you, you could imagine the kind of maintenance issues that could come as a result of that. The utilization hours go really way up, giving leaving very little downtime for for maintenance. Um, it also took a toll. Never mind about machines. I would say machines can be replaced, but humans. Um, uh, textile workers, depending on you know which time of the year it is, which shift you get put into, um, they actually had to adjust to, to really kind of very inconvenient meal times and very inconvenient commuting times. Uh, it caused a lot of um, disruption. There were all these complaints about disruptions in sleep and and just the, the the sheer number of hours that people had to put in to kind of accommodate. Um, but then, uh, despite all these things, um, the uh, the Ministry of Fuel Resources was largely reluctant to increase the generating capacity of Shanghai. Really, until after fifty, until after fifty-five and fifty-six. Now, um, 
one reason why I end the story in 55, and this, this is something I get into in chapter in, in chapter 7, is that the underlying logic of development changes after 1955. Uh, this is the middle of the first five-year plan. Uh, Liu Lanbo, who actually takes over as the uh, minister of... Uh, this is the, the, the unit that, take, that succeeds the Ministry of Fuel Resources. Um, he... Yeah, he takes over as Minister of Electrical Industries, I believe. That's the that's the actual portfolio. Uh, he realizes that uh, a lot of the a lot of the infrastructure development, a lot of the newly installed electrical, uh, a lot of the planned uh, expansion of electrical uh, generating capacity had not been achieved by 1955. Most of what was being done in the first five-year plan was really about kind of making full use of its of the existing equipment, and that come fifty-five to from fifty-five to fifty-seven, uh, the pace of construction of all these power plants, the pace of installing or the installation of new power equipment, had to pick up in order for you them to meet the targets. Um, and this is where we see a kind of a critical, um, a, 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 uh, this is where you see a kind of a critical juncture, right? A, a turn away from the, the, an existing policy of using, of, of, of using, of pretty much running the, the, the equipment to the ground mm-hmm. um, and uh, a shift towards accelerated construction. And I think that's sort of the, um, sort of where that you know the crucible of the Anthropocene story kind of ends. That this after fifty five, what we actually do see is the Great Acceleration itself. Yeah, interesting. Interesting that you um yeah that you yeah why exactly you you um sort of take it up to nineteen fifty five and the shift that you um describe. Um, we've already been talking for quite quite a while, uh, uh and I don't want to hold you up uh, that much longer, but I think um. So one final um, aspect that you that you highlight in, in particularly in the conclusion that I wanted to to ask you about is that you talk about I mean yes you finish in 1955 but I think especially because you go you go sort of beyond the 49 divide this is really well the story as a whole but in particular because you do move into the PRC what you describe the whole process uh, and particularly the centralization through the uh, wartime period. Um, it's really instructive also to understanding how energy works in China today. And I think um, what you bring up and what I sort of found interesting in the conclusion is like that you talk about the carbon lock-in and to what extent carbon lock-in can actually be or the extent of carbon lock-in that uh, we could find in China, we can still find in China, is very much tied to these to the period that you look uh, at uh, in the book. And I wonder whether you can talk a bit about that because I think this is really uh, sort of a, where, where the book uh, uh, you know, is even though it finishes again in 1955, it is really quite relevant to our understanding of China today as well. Yeah, um, no, it's it's really interesting. But next next week, my students will actually be reading Mark Elvin's uh, article about where the hydraulic lock in concept comes from, okay. and I just kind of put the the the, the, the carbon lock in, um, and that there is actually a really interesting part right in the hydraulic lock in argument, which is that you know what do, what do engineer bureaucrats do. Right, in as they pursue, um, as as they as they go about, um, you know, addressing problems, right? They they keep building onto these existing structures. I think that's that's the that's the thing that, and it and then it creates it 
it causes greater destabilization. I think that's sort of what what is going on with the renew trans the the the, um, the transition to renewables. I think that's exactly what's kind of going on. That the, the Chinese, be it China or Taiwan, I, I would say that electrical infrastructure came out of the same moment. It's that's it's that in, encounter with imperialism. It's that encounter with total warfare that shaped the electrical infrastructure. And that is the, the carbon lock-in that happened after 1955, the extent which was largely because both were actually on that path, uh, were embarking on that path of, of accelerated development. Um, now, is there a way to kind of reverse this? Um, I mean, there's a lot of talk about kind of smart grids of microgrids and, and all that. But the, the question then is, what do you do with that existing infrastructure that's out there? Right. Uh, if we look at wind power curtailment that's happening in China, part of the reason why um, a lot of the wind power, solar power is actually not fed back to the grid is precisely because of the 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 the, the, um, the grid itself is and one of the reasons and one of the many reasons is that the the, the grid itself does not have a, a, a carrying capacity that is high enough, um, and also the existing infrastructure um, you know also requires the burning of coal. Um, to funnel sort of hot water for, for, for heating. Uh, and so much so that if you were to do both, you know, if you were to feed the electricity from the from the windmills uh, during the winter months, it would just kind of overload. It would just kind of overload the grid. This is, I think, the, the problems we have to look at. And this is the, sort of the carbon lock-in uh, problem. Um, I always, you know, look at all these discussions about transition to renewables and I'm just kind of, Annoyed at how people think that capacity building is a way is the is the solution that that, that electrification is the magic bullet that will kind of save us from climate change. Um, I don't think so. I I think that we have to be a lot more conscious about the extent of the carbon lock, and we have to address these problems first before we um, come up with a much more comprehensive solution. Um, the carbon lock-in issue also forces us to think about questions of coordination of of, of uh, how do you coordinate the different um, parts of electrical power infrastructure development uh, in order to make sure that you know uh, that this transition to renewables don't just end up you know creating generating more waste creating more problems than it was meant meant to solve um, and I think that engineer bureaucrats the engineer bureaucrats the 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 the, the lessons that they have to teach us I think provide us with some insights. They may not have, and that's one other thing I would say, is that they may not have ready-made solutions for our problems today. But they can teach us about the importance of um, coordination. They can teach us the importance of trust. They can teach us the uh, the importance of learning to how uh, learning to deal with um, the persistence of obsolete technologies uh, and how to kind of overcome that. Um, and if we draw the right lessons from this, I think we might be a little better off. And, and I would sure, just kind no. of end on a very modest note. <laughs> <laughs> no, thank you so much. I think, yeah, again, I think this is sort of a, the, the, the end point. This is really, really another fascinating point, especially if we look at things from today. Um, so again, I've already taken up a lot of your time. But as always, I want to know, of course, now that the book is done, uh, what, what are you working on now? Oh, what am I working on now? Um, I've started a, a project on plastics. Uh, it's actually largely the same questions that I picked up. Uh, this, uh, which is, of course, the, you know, the imp I'm interested in the implications of the transition to the to the carbon economy. 
Uh, and uh, the reason why I picked up the plastic story is that I, this allows me to shift my focus away a little bit from mainland China towards uh, Taiwan, Hong Kong, um, South Korea, um, and Japan. Really look at the the, the role of um, foreign um, foreign industries, uh, multinational companies, um, the, um, the the petrochemical the the, the uh, the role of petrochemical industries in the transformation of Chinese uh, uh, economies, uh, the role of overseas Chinese capitalists as well in in, in facilitating the the the, uh, the plastic trade, and ultimately all these, I hope, will converge onto China in uh, sometime around 1990. Because after, around after 1990, uh, many of these actors, uh, uh, many of these uh, managers who were running these um, uh, plastic manufacturing facilities in Hong Kong, Taiwan. Um, gradually moved uh, to mainland China, and we again we got, we see this massive acceleration of uh, the growth of the plastic industry after after the 1990s. So um, that's my um, that's my next project, um, and uh, it definitely continues. I feel from uh, some of the questions that I uh, brought up in uh, my my current book. Yeah, thanks so much. That sounds uh, sounds really interesting as well, and we we are all certainly looking forward uh, to uh, to uh, learning more about that in the future. Yeah, thanks a lot for taking the time to talk to us. Well, thank you for you know your really insightful questions and um, you know drawing helping me draw the main arguments of my of my of my of my book. Yeah, thanks so much. Okay, take care. All right. Bye bye.